0: You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of 1 Kings. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. We're in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, and as you're flipping there, we've got just a couple announcements. We've got uh, the Power Team coming to town uh, tomorrow, Thursday through Sunday, 7 o'clock each night at the high school. And um, of course, tomorrow night is the Pulse, so if you want to come to the Pulse, we'll be praying for that outreach going on over at the school and covering it in prayer. And then uh, perhaps one of the other three nights you could uh, could make it over there. Um, But totally up to you. And uh, we've also got that chili cook-off coming in on the 17th. And uh, Chad just wanted me to announce that if you guys have signed up or told them you're going to do it, make sure you get all the the right forms in and stuff so they know exactly what to um, be prepared for. And and even if you're not going to be making a chili... um, he just also wanted to stress, come and fellowship and, and have a dinner and and, uh, and uh, have the fellowship there at that chili cook-off. So, I <clears throat> um, think that's uh, the majority of, oh, home fellowships, booyah, how could I forget Frank's over there sweating, like, <laughs> is he going to forget? Uh, no, home fellowships, check out the bulletin board in the back for um directions and all the information back there. And there's three different home fellowships at the Vaughn's house and at, um, I've never actually met them, but Roger. Roger and Lucy Wood and then the Gishes. So uh, those are the three home fellowships starting up this Sunday. So talk to, uh, if you have questions, you can talk to Kevin back there or Frank over here. So um, before we get started tonight, I, I have a, um, a little YouTube video of the Tabernacle. It's a little tour. Um, not the best graphics, but I thought it was just kind of a you know, kind of a fun way to visualize what we've been learning. <clears throat> it's got some weird music, so we're going to have her mute it. And then the other thing is, it's kind of weird too, because um, for some reason there's a part of the temple that's like a mile high. And I don't know if that was a technical difficulty, but if it has an angel with a trumpet on the top, we know who made it. But, um, <laughs> but I think it's a pretty good little uh, demonstration of the temple. So go ahead. And uh, I'll make our own music. So, um, no, I'm not going to. <laughs> well, <Whoa. laughs> got the lawyer speaking over there. <laughs> so this is kind of cool. For those of you that don't really know where Israel is, you know, we're, we're coming in uh, from, a, from a satellite's perspective and shooting over the northeast side of Africa. Here's the Red Sea and um, Israel right there, Mediterranean Sea on the left. And we're zooming into uh, the central part of Israel, roughly, where Jerusalem is. And then you're going to see Mount Moriah coming up. And kind of cool to see it sticking out of the, just get a picture of Mount Moriah out of, we've been studying Mount Moriah. So there's the really tall temple part. I'm not sure why that's so tall. But um, if you could just ignore that, color that out in your mind. But we've got the temple platform here, which uh, you can see today when you go to to Israel. <clears throat> We've got the uh, the altar. We talked about the altar last week. We've got the um, brass sea here on the 12 oxen. We've got the carts. We talked about the carts last week. And uh, as you go into the temple, the first thing you're confronted with is the altar where the burnt offerings are. And so it's just a picture of when we go in to worship the Lord, the first thing we're confronted with is the sacrifice that made a way for us, the blood that cleanses us from our sin, that makes a way for us <clears throat> to go into the into the communion, the fellowship with the Lord. The bronze sea, one of the uh, most used furnishings of the temple, it's full of twelve thousand gallons of water, and the priests would come and get water out of that and uh, and wash before doing the sacrifices. They'd also fill these up with. Uh, of the water, and they'd use that to wash off the sacrifices. We studied the pillars, Jacob and Boaz. Uh, both of their names speak about the stability of the Lord. Um, and uh, that's the giant steeple, I guess. But um, I personally don't think it was that tall. That's the only temple I've seen that tall. Uh, then we've got the, the entrance into the sanctuary, uh, folding doors that you read about. Need some WD 40 on those, make them open a little. And then we're going into the, uh, the sanctuary, sanctuary being before the Holy of Holies. This is the porch, come in through the porch or the foyer. That's where all the fellowship happened. <laughs> but uh, we have the, the lampstands, which are, everything's a picture of Jesus. You know, the lampstands speak of Jesus being the light of the world. Uh, we've got the table of showbread. Uh, the table of showbread speaks of Jesus being the, the bread of life, as he said, The bronze lavers, or the the brass lavers out front where you would wash, speaks of Jesus washing us with the water of his word as we go into fellowship with him. We've got uh, the little altar of incense, which speaks of uh, prayers being offered to us uh, by Jesus. He's he's continually interceding for us before the Father, the the scriptures say. Then we have the Ark of the Covenant. This is the Holy of Holies. This room is the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant is uh, basically the throne of God. Is what that's a picture of. We've got the two cherubim, whose wingtips are about fifteen feet across. They touch each other. They touch the walls of the Holy of Holies. We're going to read tonight about how inside of the Ark of the Covenant, um, at the point by the time it came to the temple, it only had uh, the twelve, or excuse me, the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone there. So just a little virtual tour to maybe some of you knew all that stuff. Maybe some of you, it was your first tour of the temple. I don't know. But um, that is that. <clears throat> we'll go ahead and, and get into 1 Kings chapter uh, 8. So obviously, this is Solomon building Solomon's temple is what we've studied the last couple of weeks. It's the first temple. Uh, first temple was built by Solomon it took seven years to build. If you go to Jerusalem today, Solomon's temple is no longer there. It was destroyed by Babylon in 586 BC, okay? Uh, in, during the time of, uh, of Daniel and the time of Ezekiel. Um, <clears throat> and so the first temple built by Solomon was destroyed by Babylon. The second temple was built by Zerubbabel after um, Israel came back out of the Babylonian and the, the Persian captivity um, It was built by Zerubbabel It was remodeled by Herod And then in 70 AD Who destroyed it? Rome Rome destroyed That's a, that's a pillar date in Israel's history and, and, uh, and so you'll remember I'm going to be talking a lot about that As we get towards the end of Luke's gospel And we do the Olivet Discourse but uh, in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed um, uh, the, the, the temple built by Zerubbabel and modified by Herod. And you guys know that story. Uh, Rome was invading Jerusalem. And Titus, the Roman general, for, specifically forbid the temple from being touched. And in, a, in, a, in kind of a drunken brawl, one of the Roman soldiers tossed a torch into the temple... And it lit all the curtains and everything on fire in the temple. And all of the gold melted in between the cracks of the stones in the temple. <clears throat> and so uh, the Romans had to take every stone off of one, on top of one another. Had to take it all apart and chip out the gold. And that fulfilled Jesus' prophecy that, uh, that that temple would be destroyed. And, um, and so... Uh, we'll get into that later. I even have some pictures of some of those stones later on in the Bible study tonight. Then, so if you go to Israel today, that's there's no temple in Israel. And, and the remains, the ruins, archaeologists are finding ruins of Zerubbabel's temple and of Solomon's temple as they dig down and dig under the foundation stones. And so since Zerubbabel's temple was destroyed by, or Herod's temple was destroyed by the Romans, there hasn't been a temple in Israel. And to this day, the Jews will go to the Western Wall, which is also known as the Wailing Wall. And you guys have all seen pictures of them up against a wall, bobbing their heads and putting little prayers, wedging them in the cracks. You know why they do that? Because that's the closest they can get to the Holy of Holies without being afraid they're going to step on the Holy of Holies and, and zap themselves with the glory of God. And so as you go to Jerusalem today, you know, to, uh, someday we'll go and you can go. You have to put on a little yarmulke or a hat, a head covering, and you can go. And, and that's the closest the Jews feel they can get to the Holy of Holies without being zapped by the Shekinah glory. And then we read about a third temple in the future being built. And who's going to build that temple but the Antichrist? Well, you read about it in the prophecies of Daniel, chapter 9. You read about it in Revelation and it's incredible because as you look at the prophetical time clock, um, I believe the rapture of the church is the next event in the in God's prophecy time clock. And as you study how Israel has become a nation again, and as you look at the prophecies since 1948, you know, and, and you study Daniel chapter 9, uh, the next event on, on God's prophetical time clock is the rapture of the church, I believe. And uh, an interesting thing is, is that... Uh, when the rapture of the church happens, the Antichrist is going to come on the scene. He's going to make a covenant between the Jews and the Muslims. And the interesting thing is, is that right now there's war going on in Israel between the Jews and the Muslims of who can control the Temple Mount. And so just even in the last you know, 10 years, I remember when I was getting ready to go to, on, to Israel with my school ministry class that there was battles going on and, and you know, gunfire and all this on the Temple Mount. Um, because an Israeli general just drove his jeep up there, you know, and it was like, "No nope, bad idea, you know and, and so someone has to come on the scene that can bring peace between the the Jews and the Muslims so that they can figure out where the temple goes, because right now the dome of the rock sits up there, but we know in, in prophecy that there 's going to be a temple built, and actually, as you study prophecy even more, you see that the temple is going to be built by the Antichrist right next to The Dome of the Rock, up there on the Temple Mount. Hopefully I'm not confusing you guys too much. But um, an interesting thing is if you go to Israel today, there's a place called the Temple Institute. And it's ran by people who are zealous to rebuild the temple. Zealous to rebuild the temple. They don't believe that the Messiah can come until the temple is rebuilt. So they're doing everything that they can to get that temple rebuilt. And you can go there. I've been there twice. And they've already rebuilt all of the furniture that goes in the temple, all of the furniture has been rebuilt. Massive golden lampstands, the tables of showbread, the priest's garments, I've seen them. They've even bred red heifers for the, for the sacrifice of the red heifer. And all that needs to happen now, everything is ready. All that needs to happen, I believe, is for the, the rapture of the church to take place. And, uh, and the Antichrist to come on the scene and make a covenant between the Jews and the Muslims so that that temple can be built. And three and a half years into that, he's going to set uh, halfway through the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple to be worshipped. And then we have it to the day in Revelation and in Daniel chapter 9, to the day, three and a half years later, the second coming will happen where Jesus will come down out of the clouds with his church set his feet on the Mount of Olives, and set up his kingdom here on earth for the millennial reign. So that's a lot of information. I just kind of got into it because it's very exciting. And as we get to the end of Luke, we're going to do some deep studies on the Olivet Discourse where Jesus really lays it out for us. So pretty exciting stuff. But the third temple is going to be built by um, the Antichrist. And then there's going to be a fourth temple... When uh, that temple is destroyed, when Jesus comes during the millennial reign, there will be another temple that's built, and uh, and that's where he's going to rule and reign during that millennial reign. So there's going to be four temples in the history of the world, and right now there's only been two. So exciting stuff, very exciting stuff. We've talked about the altar. We've talked about uh, the sea of brass. We've talked about the, the carts for washing the sacrifices. Um, all of these things point to Jesus. We've talked about Jacob and Boaz and how he's stability, those temples, uh, those um, pillars there. And, uh, and I kind of jumped ahead in my notes when we were on the video, but uh, yeah, I was just going to describe everything. But just beautiful. It was a, definitely a beautiful piece of architecture. And uh, an interesting thing is this is the temple. But as you've read... Earlier on in the, in the Old Testament and up until this point, there's been such a thing called the tabernacle where Moses was given specific instructions on how to make the tabernacle and he was to follow these instructions to the T because Hebrews tells us that that tabernacle is an exact model of what heaven is going to look like. And then, the te- and then the temple, which is roughly twice the size of the tabernacle, is uh, also an it's a picture of what heaven looks like and as you read revelation chapter 4 and 5 uh you just see everything here just go ahead and read revelations chapter 4 and 5 on your free time tonight before you go to bed and uh you won't go to sleep for a couple hours though cuz it'll be so exciting cuz um everything is just it's heaven it's heaven there's a there's you know Jesus walking in the midst of the seven lampstands there's you know there's um worship happening there's the throne there's the cherubim and it's just a, it's an exact picture hebrews chapter 8 tells us of um of heaven now the tabernacle is a representation of jesus's first coming you know it, it was wrapped in animal skins and Stuart and i were just talking about how it was uh you know wrapped in basically a porpoise skin and it's just interesting because the glory of god dwelt in in this temple that was uh, covered in flesh, just like Jesus came and was the the glory of God dwelt in flesh as Jesus came, uh, setting aside the privileges of deity and becoming a man. And then the temple is a picture of his second coming that you read about at the end of, of Revelation. And it's glorious and it's permanent or the, the tabernacle. It was always falling apart. They're moving all over the place. Uh, it was made out of linens and, and furs and skins, so constantly having to be repaired. But the, the temple is just a picture of, of permanence, and yet it even fails in comparison to that better sanctuary, as we studied last week, which is in heaven. It's a sanctuary made without hands, eternal in the heavens. And one day, you guys, one day we'll get to be there. Isn't that exciting? I just think about my dad. I was just ta- talking to my neighbor The other day outside and just telling my dad's story and how he's been with Jesus for eight years now And I'm just thinking man eight years of getting to be in that Heavenly temple just worshiping Jesus and experiencing Revelation chapter four and five and and so I just an exciting thing So hopefully you're learning a little bit about the temple. Hopefully. I'm not confusing you too much, but today we're going to study The dedication of the temple as it's already been built and it's cool because uh, the youth group here, the high school and middle schoolers, they're going through uh, First Kings as well. In fact, last night, Stuart taught them First Kings chapter 8, and he sent me an email today, and I was just so excited reading his email because he started out his Bible study by telling the kids, and I said, I purposed in my heart I was going to steal this from him. But he told the kids, imagine the most exciting, impressive thing you've ever seen in your entire life so go ahead imagine that anybody have anything what's the most exciting thing that you've ever seen in your entire life anybody have anything don whoa you saw that wow you were there you were on apollo Oh, you weren't on it oh you were on the test site wow wow the firing of the second station second stage of the apollo test craft wow impressive wow <laughs> okay forget that this doesn't even measure up to that <laughs> who else something else just the most awe inspiring scene you've ever you've ever seen anybody think of it the eruption of mount st helens wow you're not that old are you oh wow <laughs> thought you were like 25 or something. <laughs> oh, I know, me too. 28. <laughs> Someone else, one more. Just impressive, just the most impressive thing you've ever seen. Come on, Barb, you got to have something awesome. The birth of your labrowiler. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, imagine that, and then we're going to see a scene today, a scene today that's probably, you know, you know, it probably dwarfs, if that's better than. It's better than Mount St. Helens. It dwarfs Mount St. Helens, as long as that means it's better than Mount St. Helens. You know, better than the, than the release of that second stage of the spacecraft. And, um, and that is the dedication of the temple. And man, if, if, if they had security cameras back then, or if they had news crews that could have captured this and that we could watch that on YouTube. I mean, I bet our jaws would just drop, but we're going to read about it tonight. Verses one through nine, we read about, uh, the return of the ark from the city of David up to, um, the, the temple there in Jerusalem. So let's go ahead and, and just read this, uh, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. And so you guys know where the city of David is. We've looked at um, an overhead shot of Jerusalem quite a few times. Uh, Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle the priests and the Levites brought them up. And so uh, hopefully one of the first things that comes to your mind is the last time the Ark was transported. It was transported by David. If you remember, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, these carnal priests, took the Ark of the Covenant out to battle with the Philistines. And they ended up losing that battle with the Philistines. And the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they put it in, you know, the, the cave with I believe it was Dagon, their false god, you know, and um, and that statue kept falling over, you know, in the nighttime, it'd fall over in awe of the ark and they'd have to come set it up and it would fall over again, you know, and uh, just paled in comparison to the living God and sores broke out on all of the Philistines and, you know, they knew that it was because of this, um, because of this ark that was there. And so they said, we got to get rid of this thing. So they built a cart, a new cart, and attached it to some milk cows, and they put the ark on top of this cart. And then they put these milk cows' calves across the street, across the road, and said, okay, here's how we know if it's from the Lord. The uh, the cows, if it's the Lord, the cows will just go right to back to Israel. But if if it's just coincidence, then these cows are just going to go walk across the road to their calves that are crying out for them, and sure enough, the cows just bypassed their calves and started heading towards Israel. Well, the the ark was um, taken by some some Israelites who uh, took the liberty to open it up, to see what was inside, to check out the, the artifacts that were inside. And as they opened it up, um, basically that top part of the ark is called the mercy seat, where the high priest once a year would go in and and put blood on the mercy seat, and it's a picture of Jesus sitting on the throne, and his blood gives us mercy. And they took off the mercy seat, and as they did that, they took off that top cap to the ark, the mercy seat. As they did that, 50,000 people died. 50,000 people died. And so after that, eventually David was told, here's the ark, come and get it. And so a great party came and got it, and they start walking with the oxen, and uh, or the cattle, and, and one of the cows stumbled, and it caused the ark to kind of slip off balance. And you guys remember, um, what was his name? Uza, Uzi, named after a machine gun. Um, <clears throat> but uh, it was, uh, wrote it down. Yeah, it was like Uzza or something like that. Uzza reached out and grabbed it to stabilize it and was struck dead by the Lord right then. And after that happened, David was frustrated for quite some time. He was frustrated. Here we're excited to bring the ark back and and you know Uzzah was just helping. And how could this have happened? What are you, Lord? How could you do this if you're so merciful and and, and you know the, the moral of the lesson was as David went back and was frustrated with the Lord, you know, he began to read the Word of God like all kings were supposed to read the Word every day. And he was reminded that the ark was to be transported on poles by the priests. And that they had uh, followed the system of the world and how to transport the ark. And and so there was an error there in their part. And then Uzzah trying to stabilize the throne of God, basically. God didn't need Uzzah's help. And so there was a lesson. And David, the light bulb went on in his head. And he said, okay, Lord, I want to be obedient to you. and, And all of your ways are perfect and just and righteous and so they went back and they got the poles and they packed it in and david was so excited to be bringing the ark into the city of david and you remember he was uh dancing around in his lim- linen ephod or his whitey tidies, you know and michael was watching from the window and she got all mad and oh didn't the king look fine today uh dancing around in his undies out there you know and and uh you know david kind of laughed at her and just said hey I'm so excited about the Lord, I'm going to be even more undignified than this. And then it becomes a rated R movie. And, um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, so that's how the, uh, the ark was the lesson before. And so this time Solomon remembers the story of his dad transporting the ark. And so he, uh, he does it right. He has the priests uh, bring it up. Verse 5, also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with them before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. So there were a multitude of people. Remember the census that David took was about 1,300,000 mighty men who could wield a sword. So that's just that, you know. So you can imagine the women, the children, the men who couldn't wield swords and all of that, and the great procession that was happening. And, uh, and so... Huge multitude and a huge multitude of sacrifices as well. <clears throat> then the priest brought in the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim for the cherubim spread and we can get that next video loaded uh, for the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and it's poles. And so uh, just another quick shot of the the Holy of Holies here inside. Just a beautiful place here. Got the Ark of the Covenant there. We've got these the, the glory. We're going to read about the glory coming. And then uh, the cherubim there, uh, wing to wing. And uh, you can go ahead and play that one more time, Stuart. And uh, as, as you're playing it, just one more time so that just everyone's getting it drilled into their head. Uh, it says that in the Holy of Holies, the ark was there. And then verse 8, the poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place. So that's, that's kind of interesting. They're kind of sticking out there. And, uh, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. So what that tells us is that um, this book was written... Before the Babylonian captivity Because after Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar came The temple was destroyed And so that lets us know that The first majority of the book Was written before uh, 586 BC Um, Verse 9 Nothing was in the ark Except the two tablets of stone Which Moses put there at Horeb When the Lord made a covenant With the children of Israel When they came out of The land of Egypt. So nothing was in the ark, just like we saw in that video, except the two tablets. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 3 through 5, tells us that inside the ark used to be the tablets, but then what else? Two other sets of things. Aaron's rod that budded. Okay, remember there was contention as to who was going to lead the priests and so the Lord said, Everyone take your rod and put it in the tabernacle. And the next day, whoever's rod has budded, then he's the leader. And Aaron's rod had budded and had fresh almonds on it. And so that went in there. What else? Uh, Moses' staff. I don't believe Moses' staff was in there. I think I always get that confused with Aaron's rod. The manna, the jar of manna. Um, was in there and so an interesting thing that you know, there's a jar full of heaven angels food The bible calls it angels food tastes like wafers and honey And um, apparently it's gone now by the time solomon brings that back, you know Either the philistines when they captured it popped open the lid saw some, you know vanilla wafers in there, you know and Thought they'd eat those babies down. That's pretty good You know either that or those israelites that captured the ark or that found it uh, when they opened it, perhaps they were messing with it. And then Aaron's rod also was missing. So, um, and so uh, by this point, the, uh, the ark just had the tablets in it. And then there's so much more. The parallel passages for this chapter are 2 um, Chronicles chapters 5, 6, and 7. And they're very similar except for a couple of spots And in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 11 through 14, go ahead and flip there with me and then just keep a little piece of paper or a pen in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 because we'll come back there a little bit later. So this is one reference that would probably be helpful to flip to. As you're doing that, take a little sip. 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 11. And so this is just, it's almost in consecutive order here. So here we are, the... Ark has come in, it's, it's in the, the holy of holies, or the most holy place, and then it came to pass when the priests came out of the most holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without keeping to their divisions. And so there were 24 divisions of priests that would rotate every month, um, excuse me, every 15 weeks, I think it was, or something, they'd rotate constantly uh, to work in the temple, but Everyone was here. Twenty-four divisions of priests were in the holy place there. And the Levites, who were the singers, all those of Asaph, remember reading Psalms of Asaph, and Herman and Jedithan with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them, 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Again, imagine the most spectacular thing you've ever seen and then compare it with this scene. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one. So just, you know, what heaven's going to be like. Just, just worship, just unity. And everybody's singing on key, you know. Just don't worry about how you're going to sound there. Just sing with all that you have. They're all singing as one. Yeah, they lifted up their, uh, <clears throat> to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord saying, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That the house, the house of the Lord was filled with, with a cloud You just picture that's, that's kind of what we're seeing there So that the priest could not continue ministering Because of the cloud For the glory of the Lord Filled the house of God And so just I don't think any of us have ever experienced Anything quite like this And we're going to read of a scene Just a little bit later in chapter 7 Of Second Chronicles towards the end Of the Bible study and so just keep your finger there in Second Chronicles, but go back to First Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So we have a cloud, a manifestation of, of God and of his glory, of the Shekinah. Uh, glory and as there's a picture there of the tabernacle this goes clear back to exodus chapter 40 verse 34 when the tabernacle was first filled with the glory of god after its completion and moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the glory filled it and the cloud rested above it and uh, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle the children of Israel would go onward on their journeys and they'd follow the cloud by day and they'd follow a, a pillar of fire um, by night. And so this goes clear back there to the tabernacle days, that same cloud filling the temple. And then verses 12 through 60, uh, through 12 through 21 actually is a, a sermon by Solomon. We're just going to go through that real quick. Then Solomon spoke, the Lord said he would dwell In the dark cloud, I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed the whole assembly of Israel. And while all the assembly of Israel was standing and he said, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who spoke with his mouth and just you might just underline that he spoke with his mouth. To my father David, a similar similar relationship was there between David and the Lord, as was between Moses and the Lord. You know, the Lord spoke to Moses as he would a close friend, and uh, and uh, and with his hand he fulfilled it, saying, "Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I've chosen no city from any tribe of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel." Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. You know, sometimes we think that the Lord was like, no way, you're not going to build it. You know, kind of a look down on David. But, you know, the Lord appreciated David's heart there. Verse 19, nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. So the Lord has fulfilled his word, which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father, David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers. When he brought them out of the land of Egypt, so Solomon's little sermon, we've gone through all of that quite a bit. Almost every chapter is just the story there of, of David you know and, and Solomon being uh, rising up in his place, and David's heart to build the temple. You know we've gone over that quite a bit, and so we're just going to move on because this is quite a long chapter. Um, Verses 22 through 61, Solomon just cries out a prayer on this great grand opening day of the temple. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven. So we see Solomon, we see some postures here of worship on the grand opening of the great place of worship. We see him standing. And then we see him doing what? Raising his hands towards heaven. And then later on in verse 40, 54, towards the end of this prayer he prays, we see that somehow he went from standing and with his arms up. By the end of this prayer, he's down on his knees and he's bowing down before the Lord. And 2 Chronicles chapter 6 tells us that he had made a special platform for the grand opening, kind of a stage. It was, you know, roughly seven feet high and seven feet wide. And it was this big stage. And and here he is in the midst of the entire assembly, millions of people, millions and millions of people. And here he is in the midst of them, worshiping the Lord, standing, lifting his hands. And by the end of this great long prayer we're going to go through, he's down on his knees. Now, it's something that I want to take note of. That it's not a conservative thing, it's not a liberal thing, it's not a, a Calvary Chapel thing or a Pentecostal denominational type thing to bow down in worship. Sometimes we're thrown off by that, you know, someone bows down in their pew or comes up to the altar We call the altar up here to worship, and we're thrown off by that. And someone call the head usher, you know, and get them up here and take this guy out and flog him, you know, what are they thinking, you know? It's not a hyper-Pentecostal thing. It's a very hyper-biblical thing. It's very biblical to bow down. Very biblical to raise hands. Very biblical to stand in the presence of the Lord. And the subject of bowing down, Daniel bowed down. It was his custom since his early days that three times a day he would face Jerusalem and bow down in prayer to the Lord. In First Kings chapter 18, Elijah was earnest in prayer, praying for rain, and he stuck his face between his knees on the ground, crying out earnestly. In First Chronicles, David and the entire assembly bowed their heads and prostrate, uh, prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. The whole assembly corporately bowed down in worship and prostrated themselves as a, as a word that means worship. The word itself means worship, but specifically bowing down worship. And yet we get offended when we see somebody bow down. And what are they doing? That's just, oh, that's so unbiblical. And yet there's a specific word for worshiping in a kneeling position. And then in Revelation chapter 5, I believe in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 that you see the church there in those chapters represented by the 24 elders. And they all, when they see the Lamb of God take the scroll out of the right hand of the Father... The 24 elders with all of the angels and the the four living creatures bow down and worship God. And they sing a new song. So very biblical to bow down. Very biblical to lift hands. Here as Solomon does it on the grand opening of the central place of worship, Ezra did nearly the exact same thing in Ezra chapter 9 verse 5 lifted his hands toward heaven. In Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 6, there's a beautiful scene, one of my favorite chapters, where uh, Ezra takes the book of the law that they found, and he reads it, and a revival starts happening. And people start saying amen, and people start weeping as the word of God is read. It's just a beautiful, beautiful scene. Revival happens after years and years of captivity they read the word of god again and the men would give the sense or they would make sense they would teach the people the word of god and as the people were taught the word of god they they you know they bowed down and they wept and they lifted their hands and and nehemiah says Ezra blessed the lord the great god then all the people answered amen amen while lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And a great revival happened at the Watergate that day. And I think, man, what a picture of our response to the Word of God as it goes forth, as it's dusted off, and it's read to us, and as someone gives the sense. I love times of responding to the Word of God. I hate when we have to... Hurry through a chapter and slam it shut and get out of there. You know, I love that time of when we're able to just wait on the Lord and respond to his word and say, amen, amen, and lift our hands in worship and in response to the Lord or bow down on the ground. David said that I lift my hands up to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. And then David also said that during the times of the evening sacrifice, his prayers would be to the Lord as incense, and he'd lift up his hands to the Lord. And man, I just encourage you guys to grow, grow in the area of being bold in worship, and being a biblical worshiper, and lifting your hands, and not being afraid of what people think. Man, just think, you know what? Solomon did it. Man, he was a great guy, you know. Oh, Ezra did it, Nehemiah did it. Man, I'm going to just follow a biblical example of worship, not worrying, you know. I'm going to lead by example. Not being timid, but being bold in worship and, you know, and just entering in maybe for some of us to a whole new level of worship. And it's a very New Testament thing. As Paul tells Timothy, I desire that men everywhere pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting without doubting, lift up your hands. How often do we wonder what I look like, you know, and my arms get kind of tired after a while and start shaking, you know, and just do it without doubting, do it in faith and, and, obedience to the word. When you start doubting or start thinking about it too much and just like, Oh, I wonder what I look like. Then you become like the Pharisees who would do it on the street corners and, and the Lord condemned that, but just do it out of faith, you know? Um, and so it's, It's okay to express yourself to God. Men, I think specifically, need to grow in this area and be encouraged that it's okay to express yourself to God and to get on your knees. Very strong, mighty men of valor get on their knees and prostrate themselves before the Lord. And and so, man, just encourage you guys and, and just the men of this body to even lead by example in that area. Um... And so we see there uh, that uh, he spread out his hands towards heaven, verse 22. And he said, The Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You've both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised, your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only, and you might underline this because it's that clause we constantly read of, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me as you have walked before me. So Solomon knew, Solomon knew this, this statute here. And now I pray, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you've spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you; how much less this temple which I've built? And I just love that, as huge as the temple was, David just, or Solomon just knew that it was nothing. You know, it was really nothing, and. It didn't even begin to, to show the glory, the Shekinah of the Lord and, and what the heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly temple is going to be like. And just reminds me of Isaiah 66. It's a beautiful song. I tried to find it. You can't even buy it on iTunes anymore. But it just says, uh, it's Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. It says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. And what's incredible is, is that the God of heavens, we all know is too big to dwell in that size of a temple. And yet he's able and he does dwell in, in this size of a temple. He dwells in our hearts. He He lives in, in us. We're living temples uh, for him. And and so he just says, you know, I've created all this. You know the house that I really want to live in? I want to live in the heart of those who has a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's who I want to live in. That's who I want to dwell in. I want the inside of their heart to be of pure gold and just a holy place for me. A place that, I, that my glory can dwell and that I can use. And, and I just love that Solomon recognized that this. He even just says, ah, oh, this is nothing. You know, our God is so big. This, we just worked for seven years for this. And really it's nothing for the, for the Lord to dwell in. Yet regard, verse 28, the prayer of your servant and... and uh, Sorry, I just was looking at... Clock's a little hard to read back there. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God. And listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you uh, today. That your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day. Toward the place of which you said, my name shall be there. That you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven. Your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And so, uh, Solomon just calls on the Lord to be attentive to the prayers offered in this new, uh, temple, this, and, and just forgive the sinners who worship there. And, and from this point on, Solomon lists seven prayer concerns, okay? Um, verse 31, we're gonna read about sacred oaths, and you might just write in the margin of your Bible or in your notes, just, Verse 31, it says, when anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. And so just the prayer of of the person who's taken an oath there And then uh, verse 33 and 34, And when your people Israel are defeated before your enemy because they've sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in this temple, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. So verses 33 through 34 address the concern of military defeat. Should the people ever be conquered militarily because of their disobedience, then when they go to pray at the temple, just forgive them and restore them. And and then uh, verses 35 and 36, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sins, sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you've given to your people as an inheritance. And so verse 35 and 36 address drought. And in fact, in a few chapters, by chapter 18, actually chapter 17 and 18, we're going to be reading of a drought that is brought on because of sin. And yet there's just one holy man of God, Elijah, who cries out that it would rain again. And so uh, we're going to see application of this passage um, within this book. Verse 37 uh, through 40 cover natural disasters. When there's a famine in the land or pestilence or blight, and blight speaks of a plant disease, uh, which I'm sure Mr. Halverson knows as the ecologist back there, or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, Whatever prayer, whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows, and then get this, when each one knows, underline this, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hand toward this temple. And so it's talking about all sorts of natural disasters. And then it comes down to what the real plague is. And what is that? The plague of his heart. Sin. The issue is not the natural disaster. The issue is the sin. And as we've studied David's life, those last couple chapters of 2 Samuel, you know, uh, there's, there's famine, you know, and there's drought and all that. And it was all because of sin. There's a plague. And it was all because of sin. It was all because of a plague of the heart. And so it just reminds me of in, in Matthew, or actually all the gospels, really, I, I think maybe not John's gospel, talk about um, the paralytic. The beginning chapters of Matthew and of Mark, the paralytic who his friends bring him to Jesus. And the house that Jesus was teaching in was so full that they had to rip off the roof and they lowered their friend down to Jesus. It was a fun story to show Russell the other day in his children's Bible. And he's like, What are they doing? You know, and I'm like, they're lowering their friend down to Jesus. And he's like, oh, you know, like, it's like an elevator. Well, they, they brought him down. And what was the first thing Jesus said? Did he say, your paralysis is healed? No, the first thing he says to this guy was, your sins are forgiven you. That was the issue. It wasn't the, the paralysis, the real issue on that guy's, in the guy's life was a sin issue, and he needed to be forgiven. The real issue, if there was a drought or if there was a, a locust or something like that, was that the, the real plague was that of the heart. In Second Chronicles 6.29, the parallel passage, it actually puts it, when each one knows his own burden and his own grief. His own burden, his own grief, the weight of sin, the heavy hand of the Lord bringing conviction On us When we're in sin then just repent repent from that sin And as you repent and as you cry out to the lord verse 39 then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act And give to everyone according to all his ways whose heart you know for you know You alone know the hearts of the sons of men that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave uh, to our fathers Verse uh, 41 through 43 deal with uh, the prayer for protection of foreigners. Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm when it comes, when he comes and prays toward this temple here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. That all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this temple which I've built is called by your name. From the very beginning of time, do you guys know that the Jews were to be missionaries to the, to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And all throughout Scripture, it's a wonderful Bible study, all throughout Scripture, the, the Jews were to be lights and to be calling the Gentiles into the fellowship of Yahweh. And yet instead, they became so legalistic and so hard-hearted and so entrapped in their sin that that, uh, you know, they hated the Gentiles, and if they brushed up against a Gentile, you know, uh, they'd burn their clothes, and the only thing a Gentile was good for was fueling the fires of hell was their attitude, and imagine if you were called to be a missionary to South Africa, and it ended up, that's what your attitude towards the South Africans were by the end of your five-year stint there or something, you know, it's like, whoa, we need a heart change here. And so what's interesting is that now the roles have been reversed, Romans chapter 11. Now the role's been reversed and the Gentiles are a light to bring the Jews to Jesus. Really cool. uh, Yesterday we had a messianic Jew called the church uh, thinking about fellowshipping here and it was cool to hear Stuart talking to him on the phone. But, um, in Romans chapter 11, uh, you guys can just note that Romans 9, 10, 11 are all about God's heart for Israel and that he's not done with Israel. Romans chapter 9 is about Israel's past, uh, you know, rejecting the Messiah. Their present state is, is chapter 10 of Romans. Right now they're in a current state of rejecting the Messiah. But then chapter 11, God's not done with Israel. And eventually, by the end of the chapter, we'll see that all Israel will be saved because of the the light that uh, that the Gentiles are in Romans eleven eleven says I say then have the Jews stumbled that they should completely fall certainly not but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy salvation has come to the Gentiles now if their fall is riches for the whole world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles. How much more their fullness. And so I just love that. That I'm a Gentile. I don't know if you guys are, but I'm a Gentile. And that I get to be a, a light that provokes a Jew to jealousy. Such intimate fellowship with Yahweh. And, and with, you know, I'm like Solomon, raising my hands and bowing down and worship to Yahweh. And, and they're just not having that type of intimate fellowship with the Lord. And so there's just to be a provoking. To jealousy, But just cool how Solomon knew that men are going to come from far away to see the temple and to know the God of the temple. <clears throat> uh, the sixth prayer is for just times of war in verses 44 through 45. When your uh, people go out to battle against their enemy wherever you send them and when they pray to the Lord toward the city which you've chosen and the temple which I built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. And then uh, verses 46 through 50, if, they were, if the people return from exile is what this is about. And, when, and then yeah, I just underlined 46 and 47. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and then they take them captive to the land of the enemy far or near, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they are carried captive and repent and make supplication to you, And the land of those who took them captive, saying, We have sinned and done wrong. We've committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive, and pray to you uh, toward their land which you gave their fathers, the city which you've chosen and the temple which I've built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. And, uh, And so... Flip over, if you will, to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 is an incredible chapter because this is exactly what happens. In verse 1, Daniel's, you know, he's been in captivity for some time by the Babylonians because they disobeyed the Lord and they got taken away into exile. And uh, he's, you know, thinking about why are they in exile? And he reads Jeremiah the prophet uh, chapter 25, and he realizes that 70 years of captivity... Um, are met for the Israelites because of their sin against the Lord. And when he realizes that and that he's in the captivity, he just prays this incredible prayer. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, in of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the book, Books, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, and I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and and with uh, excuse me, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him. And with those who keep his commandments, listen to this, just cry of repentance that Solomon was talking about. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day. To the men of judah to the inhabitants of jerusalem and all israel those near and far off and all the countries to which you've driven them the assyrians and the babylonians and the chaldeans and because of the unfaithfulness which they've committed against you O lord to us belong shame of faith to our kings to face to our kings our princes our fathers because we've sinned against you to the lord our god belong mercy and forgiveness even though we've rebelled against him We've not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by His servant, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has is transgressed. Your law is departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses and the servant of God have been poured out on us because we've sinned against him. And he was confirmed by his words, and which he spoke against us and against our judges who judge us by bringing upon us a great disaster, For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we've not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we've not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, As it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are in reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God. Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplication before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God. For your city and your people are called by your name. That, my friends, is repentance. (laughs) That is a prayer of repentance. And man, what humility. And and I love that prayer. I've always carried that in my heart. Um, But what's incredible is after that repentance, the end of chapter 9 is one of the most incredible, just to-the-date prophecies. Daniel chapter 9 is 70 weeks that we'll study in a few weeks when we get to the end of Luke. Um, Was given to him after he humbled and repented uh, for his people And so um, back in verse 50 We're going to just cruise to the rest rest of the chapter here But it it says that uh, at the end of verse 50 it says That he would grant them compassion before those who took him captive That they may have compassion on them And in Nehemiah chapter 1 Nehemiah has a similar experience that Daniel just did And Nehemiah prays and repents and his heart is broken for the city Jerusalem, which walls lay in ruins. And as he's serving as King Artaxerxes cutbearer, um, he's just sad and his countenance is down. And Artaxerxes, right after Nehemiah repents, sees his sad countenance and says, Why are you sad? And Nehemiah says, Oh, oh my my the city of Jerusalem is is, you know, burnt and the walls are torn down and I'm just grieved. And Artaxerxes is like, why don't you go rebuild the wall, you know, and I'll give you money, I'll give you supplies, I'll give you all this stuff. And you just see the compassion that came from this leader, um, even when they were still in captivity there with Nehemiah. And then um, verse 51, for they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of that iron furnace, that your eyes may be opened to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel, to listen to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance, as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to the heaven then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice. And Second um, Chronicles chapter 7 just tells us, in addition to this, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord was on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, quoting Psalm 106.1, For he is good and his mercy endures forever. And just incredible scene there. Uh, and then, uh, so he blesses the assembly and uh, verse... Um, Let's read verse fifty-seven. May the Lord our God be with us, as He was with our fathers. May not leave us nor forsake us. That He may incline our hearts to Himself, to walk in all His ways, and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, which He commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, which with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that He may maintain the cause of His servants and the cause of His people Israel, as each day may require. That all the peoples of the earth may know that there is a Lord God. There is no other. The Lord is God. Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord, and Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. I mean, have you ever seen a herd that big? On the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before the Lord was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. At that time, Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. So from way, way, way up north, even beyond, you know, just super way up north to all the way down to, it's practically, it's like the Nile River uh, there at the, at the border of Egypt. There was a huge party going on all across Egypt for seven days and seven more days, 14 days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that the Lord had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. And so, Kevin, if you want to go ahead and go get the kids and bring them in. And uh, we'll go ahead and just close with worship. And you can go ahead and put your things aside. And the worship team, come on up. And Lord, we just thank you that here in this room, we... We people here called by your name can just walk right in to the the holy place, Lord. Lord, we can enter in with boldness, Roman tells us, and we can stand in your presence. We can worship you and have fellowship and communion with you. And Lord, we just pray that your glory would fall in this place, Lord, that you would really just uh, do a, a work that would just cause our jaws to fall open, Lord. Even that we would just consider the deep love you have for us, that that you came and became our sacrifice, that, that you who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Lord, just move us even to a new place of worship today. Lord, take us deep, Lord. Grow us. Make us bold in worship, Lord. Make us unashamed in worship. Lord, may we just be able to close our eyes and see you and just be you and us, Lord. Lord, we would be able to raise our hands in adoration and and not be ashamed. Lord, that we could bow down on our knees and just prostrate ourselves before you. Lord, just do your work here. Let your glory fall in this place, Lord. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754.